Welcome to Mishmash, a show where we unjumble important Michigan issues and explain why they matter to you. I'm Shana Roth. And I'm Jake Neer. This is an hour-long special where we are deep diving into the proposals that will be on your ballot. There are three of them dealing with voting, our state's district lines, and recreational marijuana. Yeah, Shana, these proposals, they've come a long way. There have been legal challenges in one case going all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court. We'll talk to law enforcement officials. We'll talk to journalists, business owners, and stay tuned because the governor himself, (laughs) Arnold Schwarzenegger, will make an appearance on the show in a little bit. So, Jake, let's start with Proposal 1, which would legalize recreational marijuana in Michigan for adults 21 and over. Yeah, so the idea here is to regulate it similar to alcohol, the way that alcohol is regulated in Michigan. Um, there have been a lot of think pieces about whether Michigan should go the way of states like Colorado, Washington, etc. And so here's kind of what this would do. Under Proposal 1, you could possess up to 10 ounces of marijuana and grow up to 12 marijuana plants for personal consumption. Retail sales would be subject to a 10% excise tax, as well as the normal 6% sales tax. And what that would mean for the state's coffers is it ranges anywhere from about $100 million a year to $260 million a year. That money would go to roads, schools, and local governments. And when you break down the proposal like that, it is complicated. We're not just saying, you know, legalize marijuana and that's the end of it. Right. So we've been hearing a lot of differing opinions about Proposal 1 from how safe this is going to be to how much money in taxes it will actually pull into the state. So let's start with an interview that you did with Mm -hmm. the owners of a marijuana provisioning center in Detroit's Corktown neighborhood. Yeah, so I caught up with Anquinette and Richard Sarfo. They're the owners of the Botanic Provisioning Center. It's a medical marijuana facility that's currently not operating as it awaits a new license from the state. Their business could be affected significantly by legalization of marijuana, and they're pushing for a yes vote. And if you're in the Detroit area, you might actually remember Anquinette from her former job as an anchor on Fox 2 News before she retired after being diagnosed with MS. They gave me a tour of their shop and talked about their support for Prop 1. My name is Anquinette Jamison Sarfo. This is Botanic, our uh, provisioning center in North Corktown, and I am a co-founder and chief marketing officer. My name is Richard Sarfo. I'm the COO. If you step over here, this is our, our reception area, so when people come in, they would have to show their state ID or their driver's license and also their medical marijuana certification card. So they would come in and then uh, we fill out some paperwork and then they will be allowed to go into the bedroom. And you've got three approved stickers here on the door. Uh, so you've had you've had an inspection recently. We've had quite a few inspections recently. This is the bedroom so we'll have product on display here on the walls and Yeah, so people will come in and they'll have a variety to choose from, um, hybrid, sativa, indica, the usual, uh, topicals as well, uh, edibles, uh, whatever is available for supply, because right now that's our our biggest concern is um, a licensed supply. About five years ago, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and I was put on all of the conventional medications. At the height of my medications, I was on nine different pharmaceuticals um, every day. Um, My disease-modifying treatment for multiple sclerosis was a drug called Copaxone. It was an injectable. It um, retails for $91,000 a year. Luckily, I had insurance that covered that, but still, if you don't have insurance, chances are you don't get that drug. And um, unfortunately, even though I was taking a lot of medication, I was um, sick all the time. And so sick that I was taken to the hospital several times because I couldn't stop throwing up. 
Um, the third time that happened, my husband suggested that I smoke a joint. And I smoked a joint, and my nausea went away instantly, but my, my headache also went away. My background is in the military. Uh, I was never too keen about smoking cannabis. I really got introduced it because of my wife, even though she likes to say that I gave her a joint to help her with her uh, illness. I never really believed when people say medicinal marijuana. I thought, like, it's just an excuse. Uh, it helps her. It helps her. She retired. Uh, I retired from my job, and we had this opportunity. Why not? It's a plant. Why take that extra step and legalize recreational marijuana, where it seems like your focus is really on medical? Because unfortunately, even though we have a wonderful medical marijuana system here in Michigan, a lot of people are still falling through the cracks. And you have a lot of doctors who are still hesitant to write recommendations for patients who actually have qualifying conditions. Second, a lot of people don't want to be on a registry, on a state registry, which may or may not be given to a federal government. So who wants their name on a list? And if you are a medical marijuana patient to the federal government and getting a card, you are actually um, um, admitting that you are a drug abuser. Not user, but abuser. So I'm on a list saying that I'm a drug abuser. A lot of people don't necessarily like that. There are lots of uh, prohibitions, what happens when you have um, a medical marijuana card, for instance, you are no longer allowed to have a CPL if you have a medical marijuana card. So if you're a woman, um, if you're a vulnerable person, you may not want to give up um, the ability to protect yourself just to um, access a, a plant that may or may not help your condition. Uh, just curious what your response is when you hear sort of pushback against the idea of legalizing recreational marijuana, especially as it pertains to the societal effects. I 100% understand. I have two sons, 123, 120, and my concern before with recreational uh, cannabis was that it's going to open up to everybody, everybody's going to be smoking it. I, have, I use the same argument that the church uses, all the kids are going to use it. But thinking about it and reflecting all the kids are using it already, and all the marijuana that's available out there right now, that's not coming from provisioning centers, but even some that's coming from provisioning centers, it's tainted. You don't know how it's being grown. It's being grown with uh, rat poison, with uh, other pesticides. Once it's regulated and also recreational, you smoke and clean up cannabis. That's another thing that we hear a lot. This isn't your grandma's weed, right? This is more potent. It's much more, and it, it's harder to tell exactly what you're getting. That is what a lot of people are saying. They say that that's also going to be true with recreational marijuana if it's legalized in Michigan. I'm curious what your response is to that. I didn't smoke grandma's weed. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I hear this a lot, and, and yes, uh, some tests, some studies have shown that the average potency for cannabis in like 1971 may have been 15%, and now um, some really great uh, cultivators have been able to get plants up to maybe 32% uh, THC, which is high. Um, the thing about that is you don't need to use as much when it is more potent. So instead of smoking an entire joint, you may take two puffs, put it out, and go on about your day. So that's the great thing about a higher potency is that it's more economical for a lot of people. Will, will people know what they're getting? Absolutely. Uh, in a tested, regulated market, um, we are all subject to um, compliance testing. Um, there are labs set up for that, and all of the product that is sold in the provisioning center has to be tested, has to be labeled, has to be tracked. And it's tracked from the time that it's placed into a pot when it's a seed to the time it is on our shelves and 
it's carried out the door by a patient. So it's uh, monitored in that way. If, if pesticides or contaminants are found in a particular batch, the state can pull that entire batch off of the shelves of provisioning centers all over the state. And that's the beauty of a regulated system. That would be true under the new legalization of recreational as well. Absolutely. That was Anquinette and Richard Sarfo, owners of the Botanic Provisioning Center in Detroit's Corktown neighborhood. Now, Jake, that was an interesting snapshot because it shows that as we're thinking about legalizing recreational marijuana, Michigan's medical marijuana industry is in a huge state of flux right now, too. That's right. So we pretty much have a complete overhaul of the medical marijuana licensing system going on as we speak. And that's something that I think hasn't been talked about a lot. All these centers, all these provisioning centers, a lot of them had to go out of business for a while, get their license again. You were there when they Mm -hmm. were trying to figure out exactly how this is going to work. It's been a slow grinding process. And so right now, it's not like we have the stable medical marijuana system right now. It's all up in flux right now. Exactly. And while I have spoken with uh, the Laura Department, the licensing center that has been in charge of those licenses for people who want to have a medical marijuana facility, they say that the recreational piece of it is going to be sort of like its own thing. Mm -hmm. So this is a whole new industry that Michigan will have to figure out. So November 7th, if this passes, that doesn't mean you can just go out and light up a joint on the street. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and for people like Anquinette and Richard, these are it's unclear to them exactly how this is going to affect their business, although it's it's pretty clear that it will affect it somehow and significantly, but it's still a big question. How is this going to affect us? Exactly. And Jake, you brought up some of the concerns that opposition to the proposal have. Yeah. And a big one, of course, is what I mentioned about the potency argument and also about law enforcement concerns. Traffic stops is a big one. We thought we'd bring in a member of the law enforcement community to discuss those concerns. Yeah. Blaine Copes is the executive director for the Michigan Sheriff's Association. He would actually probably disagree with a lot of what we just heard. Mm -hmm. Now, to be clear, the Sheriff's Association doesn't have a specific position on Prop 1. Copes told us he's just here to state the facts, but he did say that the association has concerns and that more than 70 county sheriffs are against legalizing recreational marijuana. I think what you're going to see is that there's there's going to be uh, more stops. There are going to be more traffic stops. In fact, uh, it's uh, anticipated there's going to be a 6% increase in uh, highway crashes, or there has been in the four states that have legalized it. So we're looking at the same in Michigan. Uh, and when and you can look- you connect that specifically to marijuana use? Well, I'm just saying that that is what has occurred after marijuana, recreational marijuana was... Just a correlation. Yes, exactly. So when we look at it, we're looking again at the public safety piece. Uh, How will it impact uh, the drivers uh, on the Michigan roadways and and all the passengers and so forth? And I I truthfully don't see a a positive uh, outcome if we legalize recreational marijuana. So there's a lot of people out there who are in favor of this proposal, but what do you think are the facts that maybe they're not considering when they're thinking of voting yes on this? Yeah, and I think one of the the big things here is when we think of recreational marijuana, at least uh, my generation, uh, we're we're thinking of that rolled joint. Uh, That's that's what we think about Mm -hmm. a recreational pot. This stuff is not that. This is a, a refined version of THC, a much stronger version of THC. I've got one sheriff that uh, does public informational sessions on this, and one of his 
pieces that he uses is he passes out gummy bears to all of the of uh, the participants, and that gummy bear can represent five uh, servings of uh, recommended marijuana. When you see a, a recreational marijuana cookie, everybody, do you eat like half of a cookie when you eat? Never in my life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, those cookies can have up to 10 servings. So unless you're, you're reading the print on there, you could eat the entire, the entire cookie and not realize that you actually were going over the, the limit as far as the recommended amount. Sheriff, a, a common argument against what you're saying here is that we, we tried prohibition with alcohol. That did not work well. Now, if you look at the numbers from the CDC, it's, you know, they say that excessive alcohol use has led to approximately 88,000 deaths and 2.5 million years of potential life lost each year in the United States from 2006 to 2010. CDC also says that exactly zero deaths can be directly attributed to marijuana each year since 2015. What's your response to that? Well, my response to that is, is let's take a look at this. Uh, in the end, <clears throat> what, what are we really looking at? What's the biggest issues that we're facing as society right now? And one of those is, and I don't think anybody will deny this, is the opioid epidemic. It's a mind-altering substance. So what we are doing here is considering legalizing recreational uh, marijuana, which is another mind-altering substance. Right Isn't now, it a safer alternative for many people facing chronic pain? Th that's different. That's medical marijuana. This is recreational marijuana for, for recreational purposes. And I, I don't think you're going to find too many people that will disagree that rec or that medical marijuana, if it's done as medical marijuana, is a worthy cause. Our only issue as law enforcement is if you're calling it uh, medical marijuana, then have it regulated by the medical community, not the law enforcement. That truthfully is outside our purview, and we would really like it to be considered part of the medical community. And part of the regulation of law, of law enforcement having to regulate recreational marijuana is the issue of traffic stops. And yes. it, it sounds like you and I have talked before that the science is not quite there yet for law enforcement to handle it, in your opinion. Well, the, the science is not quite there. It's a long ways off. I mean, there's, they're actively pursuing methods of doing this, but currently the only methodology we have is, is a chemical test that we have to send to a lab to do. And quite, quite frankly, uh, those samples that we see, we don't know how long that substance has been in an individual's uh, bloodstream. And it's, it's done differently. I mean, I mean, every person is different with this stuff. So you just can't take it at a moment in time like you can alcohol and say that was the level in the blood system and we know that it will impact you because you were a certain weight and uh, so forth. And while there are those field sobriety tests, there isn't like the PBT roadside test. No, and that's why we are really we are really working hard for our drug recognition experts, DREs, uh, to uh, ramp up their numbers uh, within all the police departments, uh, state police, and sheriff's offices in the state of Michigan, so that we will have that tool because they are specifically trained to recognize the effects of alcohol and, and how that's related to an individual's ability to drive. And in 30 seconds, you got somebody who's going up to the ballot. They are unsure about Prop 1. What do you tell them? Call your local sheriff and see what he's got to say. 
That was Blaine Copes, the executive director for the Michigan Sheriff's Association. And Shana, I think that this all sort of hits on what you stated earlier, that the day after, if this proposal passes, it's not just all of a sudden this is opened up and everyone can smoke pot everywhere walking down the street. <laughs> it's actually going to be highly controlled. And mm-hmm. it's also there's going to be a lot of questions going forward after you know this passes, if it does pass. Yeah, I think the key to the proposal is that it's going to regulate marijuana, regulate marijuana mm-hmm. like alcohol. So you, there's something of a template there. But I mean... It's it's going to be very interesting if it does pass to see just how the state reckons with this and how they get all of those kinks worked out that come with any new industry. And and talking to voters, too, I've noticed that there is a lot of concern on some sides about society and how people are going to react themselves to this. How many more people are going to be using this product than already use it? Is it going to interfere with job mm-hmm. uh, jobs in terms of, you know, drug tests and things like that? Um, so I think and, 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 you know, the fact that there will still be people sitting in prison for marijuana charges, um, even though it's now legalized, that it's not retroactive in that way. So a lot of things that are on people's minds about this. Absolutely. Coming up, we'll talk about Proposal 2 on the Michigan statewide ballot, which would overhaul the way we draw our legislative and congressional lines in Michigan. And we'll hear directly from the Terminator himself, former (laughs) governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, about why he supports that proposal. This is special elections coverage for the Michigan Public Radio Network and from Mishmash with WDET. We're talking about the three ballot proposals that you will see in November. I'm Jake Neer. And I'm Shana Roth. And now we're talking about Proposal 2. This was started by the grassroots organization Voters Not Politicians, and we'll hear from the founder of that organization and an action star supporter in just a few minutes. But first, this proposal to change how Michigan draws its political district lines has had a lot of opposition. In order to get on the ballot, it was challenged all the way to the state Supreme Court. And since then, more than a million and a half dollars have been poured into opposition campaigns. And, you know, there's a lot of legitimate concerns about mm-hmm. this proposal, and there's also a lot of misinformation being spread around. So we wanted to bring in Riley Began. She's a member of Bridge Magazine's Truth Squad, and she starts by breaking down what this proposal actually does. The proposal itself is pretty complicated because it lays out all of the structure of this proposed committee, but basically what it would do is create a 13-person commission responsible for drawing voting district lines instead of legislators. The reason it's so complicated is half of it is honestly just figuring out how you select these people. It's a pretty randomized process to select these people with a weighted statistical formula. Really exciting words here. Um, And once these people are in office, everything they do is would be public, public record. And then 
they can hire consultants and people like that to help them draw these lines. They would have meetings around the state to get uh, input from people about what their communities need and want in terms of a representative. Then they go, they draw these lines with the help of the consultants and statistical mapping software and stuff like that. Then they make those maps public again, and then people would have the same opportunity to weigh in on those maps. And then the commissioners, this is its own process, but the commissioners would vote on those maps. And once those, like the maps pass, they become the new voting lines. One of the big things that people seem to have an issue with is how these people are chosen. I see a lot of people who are against the proposal using air quotes when they say it requires four Republicans and four Democrats and five independents. Is there a concern with how these people are chosen? So that's one of the main concerns, I would say, from people who who aren't in support of Prop 2. The 13 members, there will be four Republicans, four Democrats, and five independents. The problem with that in Michigan is that we have no real way to check what someone's political identification is. You know, you can look at what presidential primaries they voted in, but sometimes people vote in the other primary. It's, it's not, you know, for sure. But when you apply to become a commissioner, you would basically have to swear under threat of perjury what your political <laughs> identification is. The assumption is these people would be under an immense amount of scrutiny. If you find anything nefarious with the political identification of these people, you can challenge that. Also, the top four members uh, the House and Senate combined get to basically strike five people each from the pool. Those might be the most political, but it's pretty complicated. There's no way to guarantee that everyone would be the political affiliation that they said they would be. One of the concerns that I hear is, how do you hold these people accountable? The reason that you have legislators doing this is because there's accountability built into that job, right? There are elections, there are other things. What about with these commissioners? The base of that that concern is that these people basically are protected from the checks and balances that we have in our regular state government. The governor and the legislature can't get rid of them. You can't vote them out of office. The reason for that is because they want to make sure that legislators can't kick them out if they don't like the maps. But the commissioners can get rid of one of their own. Ten of the 13 members have to vote to kick one of them out. So there's going to be a bipartisan agreement if one person needs to go. And then the situation compared to any other sort of thing that legislators might be working on, um, that can be checked by the voters. So if you don't like that your legislature um, you know, approved a gas tax or something, you can vote against them in the next election. But this is the one thing where legislators can draw their own lines. So if you don't like how they drew the lines, theoretically, you wouldn't be in their district anymore. So you can't check them either. So you can't get them out of office, but you probably can't get your legislators out of office for this particular situation either. Mm. Finally, the big thing that I've been hearing is people are, are throwing around these numbers, $4 million, $5 million. It's an unchecked, crazy spending spree that this commission can do. Realistically, what is this commission and this proposal going to cost? That's a valid concern. It is a lot more expensive than our current system. In the last redistricting cycle, I think it was something around $848,000 appropriated to redistricting. This estimated would be about $4.6 million a year. I should say that that does account for what it costs to protect these things in court. We don't know exactly how much the state is 
paying to protect their maps and courts right now. I actually have a FOIA request out for that, so hopefully we'll <laughs> have that We will look forward to seeing that. Fingers crossed, yeah. yes. But it, it is more expensive because they're going to have to hold these hearings. They're going to have to pay for these commissioners' salaries. But the math on that works out to around $1 per Michigander per decade for this. All right, Riley, you want to just give uh, listeners a pitch for the Truth Squad and Bridge Magazine? I would love to. I work on the Truth Squad, which is Bridge Magazine's way to fact check uh, some of the ads and other misinformation you might be hearing on the campaign trail this year. If you go to bridgemi.com, you can find all of our Truth Squads there. Does that come with a cape and a mask? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Riley Beggin, a reporter and superhero of mm-hmm. sorts from Bridge Magazine. So, Shana, not an easy proposal. It's really not. I mean, there's just a lot going on there. If you look at the actual proposal language, the full thing, I mean, it is dense and it is pages. And really, it is a proposal that kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, if we think back to about two years ago, I mean, people did not think this was something that was going to go anywhere. I mean, we were really, even as journalists, kind of slow to realize like, oh, this is not stopping. And it was a completely grassroots operation and really trying to get people to understand redistricting. I mean, that's just not just an uphill battle. I mean, that's a war (laughs) trying to sit people down and be like, so gerrymandering. Yeah. And and let's also put this into the context that it was almost, I'm going to take that back, not almost, it is completely unheard of for a proposal like this to be able to get the number of signatures you need to get on the ballot without paying the circulators. I mean, this was a task that had people in Lansing their heads spinning around. How did they pull this off? And I think we're still wondering how that happened. But it really is a truly grassroots movement. Of course, over time, it's picked up national attention and donors. So, But it really beat the odds in the courts and has amassed a huge following as well. And that includes some celebrity endorsements as well. This is my favorite part of this show, Shana. (laughs) You sat down with the former governor of California and the Terminator himself, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I came in here when I heard that there is a... uh Uh, an initiative on a ballot that talks about redistricting reform. And uh, I, of course, have followed it very closely over the last uh, few months and uh, been very fond of Katie, the courage that she had to come out of nowhere, not being involved in the political arena at all, but just an ordinary person that refused to just sit on the couch, watch TV and complain. And I always say this to people, I said, don't sit on the couch and when you watch TV and or listen to the radio or read the paper and complain. Go out and do something about it. And they always say, well, what can I do? Well, here's a good example. And I think that she is a, not only going to be successful with this initiative, but she's going to be a perfect example for the rest of the country and for the rest of the world that one person can make a difference, can rally up the troops and do something about it. You know, And I think, as you can see, that redistricting reform now is something that people have not ever heard about, now know about it, they get involved with it. The poll numbers look very positive, and uh, of course we don't rely on any of that. We keep fighting all the way to the end, and that's why I'm here. I came here just now from Budapest, uh, where we're in the middle of shooting Terminator uh, 6, and uh, I came here to help out and to give it that extra push that it may need. And I do the same in Colorado. There's another initiative in Colorado. And so I'm just here trying to be helpful and make sure that the people get involved and make this pass because it's uh, politicians versus the people. And the way the system works is it's all about them versus the people. We want them to become public servants, not party servants. 
And as a former Republican governor, what do you make of the fact that a lot of the opposition has come from Republicans on this initiative? Well, that's natural because uh, right now it favors the Republicans. So whenever in a state it favors the Democrats, then of course the Republicans are against it and the Democrats are for it. So it's always who it favors. And uh, so I think we should not pay much attention to any of the what party is in control. We should pay attention to only one thing, and that is let's get rid of the fixed system, a system that has been in place for over 200 years that no one could articulate of what it was, but it was always a system that uh, created job security for the politicians because when you are in a Republican district uh, and you are way to the right, there's no way that anyone can challenge you. And if you're a Democrat, way to the left, there's no one that can challenge you there. But then when you go to the Capitol and have to do the people's work, you cannot meet in the middle because you're too far to the left and too far to the right. So it is a, a, a fundamental problem there and also that it is job security. Because you cannot challenge them, there is no changeover. Look at Congress has now 18% uh, approval rating, but 98% of the people will get reelected and sent back to Washington. So you know the, the, the system stinks, it is foul, it needs to be changed, and it is about time. Now is the time to do it. So let's terminate gerrymandering. Katie, what, you've gotten the support from the governor early on a little bit, you know, before the primary with that tweet. What has this meant for you? It's been incredible. I think that right now we have a system that's done completely behind closed doors once every 10 years by politicians who don't want the general public paying attention. So we see that a lot of people kind of know about gerrymandering, but they're just learning about it and just learning about a different way that we can do it. I think um, that uh, Governor Schwarzenegger was able to help implement this in a state that has proven that it can be successful and that it can lead to better results for the people, get newer people into politics and also help with that approval rating. Make sure that we are actually happy with our representatives because they're finally accountable to the voters like they should be. And uh, that leads me to my last question. You have seen you know, redistricting happen in your own state. What has it meant for California? Well, in 10 years, we had 265 congressional elections. And in these 265 congressional elections, we only had one time a change in party hands. Only one. After we had the reforms done, there was a 23% change the following year. So think about that's the change. And now Democrats and Republicans have to go and talk much more to the center rather than to the extreme right or extreme left. So there is now they get along better, they can get much more done. I mean, imagine that now Democrats all of a sudden are 90% for what the Chamber of Commerce is recommending. That has never happened before. And the Republicans all of a sudden talk about immigration reform and they talk about health care reform. So there's things that have happened that is so pleasant and they get the budget done on time in, in California, which during my time they could never get done. So I think that it has really shown that you can really bring order into the system and make the politicians really represent the people rather than the special interests and themselves. Arnold Schwarzenegger, former governor of California, a state that has already overhauled its redistricting process. Of course, he's also the Terminator. Mm -hmm. uh, and Katie Fahey, founder and executive director of Voters Not Politicians, the group behind Proposal 2. And Shana, really interesting interview, especially with the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger, not only was he a governor in a state that already did this, he's a Republican governor in a state that already did this. Exactly. And that was why I was very excited to hear from him, because... 
a lot of the opposition to Proposal 2 has come from Republicans, mm -hmm. particularly the conservative groups like the Chamber of Commerce. You know, they fuel, gave a lot of that money towards the early opposition to keep this off the ballot in general. And then now that it is on the ballot, we have been seeing those types of groups uh, filter in money for opposition to the ballot proposal. And so given that, we also wanted to hear from a Republican that is opposed to this. So we sat down with Linda Lee Tarver. She's with the Republican Women's Federation of Michigan and a longtime GOP activist. She staunchly opposes Prop 2. Uh, she says the lines should be drawn by people elected directly by the voters. The gerrymandering is about having the pen when it comes to drawing the lines for after a census. And whoever's in power, and I don't believe that the Democrats believe that they're going to be in power to have the pen. And because they won't have the pen to draw those lines, they want to get it some other way and take it away from the people who should have that, who speak for the people. Our elected representatives speak for the people and they should have the pen, whoever's in charge. And if it's Democrats, they draw the lines. And if it's Republicans, they draw the lines. That's Linda Lee Tarver with the Republican Women's Federation of Michigan. And it's worth noting that if Proposal 2 does pass and the polls have them looking pretty good, mm -hmm. there will likely be lots of lawsuits on this issue. Mm -hmm. Initially, probably as they try and get this commission together and figuring out who's going to be on the commission. And then once they get this commission together... Every time they draw those maps, there's probably going to be lawsuits coming out of that. This is a brand new entity of state government that we don't have. It's just creating it out of nothing. So that is a big question. And Shana, there's a lot of power in those district lines. Nobody wants to give those up easily. Coming up, we'll get to Proposal 3, and that would make big changes to how Michigan votes. This is special elections coverage for the Michigan Public Radio Network and from Mishmash with WDET. I'm Jake Neer. And I'm Shana Raw. And we are talking about the three ballot proposals that you will see on your ballot in November. And we are in the home stretch now with one proposal left to talk about. And there's a lot going on with Proposal 3. Overall, it deals with voter accessibility. It would put into the state constitution things like straight ticket voting, where you can check one box to vote for an entire party. It would also require statewide election audits, right for U.S. military and overseas voters to get absentee ballots. You'd also get automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration, and no reason absentee voting. Shana, there's a lot going on yes. in this proposal. That's actually one of the criticisms of this proposal, that it's a lot of issues up for a single yes. yes or no vote at the same time. We just heard from Linda Lee Tarver with the Republican Women's Federation of Michigan about her opposition to Proposal 2. She's also worked for a number of Michigan secretaries of state and opposes Prop 3 as well. She says state law 
already covers a lot of this. Protecting the right to vote a secret ballot is already in the state's constitution, Article 4 of our state's constitution. Enshrining military service members and overseas voters get their ballots in time already enshrined in the Michigan Constitution. Automatic registering of citizens to vote at the Secretary of State's office unless the citizens declines. The opt-out portion of it is um, inherently problematic in a variety of ways. That is one that I have I take exception with. There are people who do not want to participate in the voting process. They do not want their objectors or they want to live off the grid or they're not mentally capable of understanding that they are even alive, let alone being automatically registered to vote with a state ID. We, um, we have some individuals who are in witness protection. We have undercover law enforcement. We have um, a bill that has been passed to remove the names and addresses of individuals who are being stalked or human trafficked or have been in situations where their lives were in threat. But to automatically opt in, as this suggests, would put those people at risk. And your name and address goes onto a publicly FOIA'd um, qualified voter file, which means I can look up your name. I can find out the last time you voted. I can't find out when, what you voted, but I can find out where you live by looking up your name, it and I can do, do that. Those people would still have the option to, to opt out, though, wouldn't they? If you understand the option of opt out, you would be automatically put in a pool when you get a driver's license or a state ID or going into renewal. You would be automatically registered. But selective service is an opt-in. It's not an opt-out. I wanted to ask you about straight ticket voting, which is a part of this, and this is something that our state has kind of gone back and forth and back and forth. It's a, it, it's on the ballot. It's not on the ballot. Uh, this seems like it would, you know, sort of provide some consistency. What is the concern with straight ticket voting? I think that it's just a smoke and mirrors when it comes to understanding straight ticket. If you find someone who voted for you based on the straight ticket. Some of the people, they don't even know the names of the elected officials that they voted for. They voted straight party instead of a person. And I believe, that just as me, if I put my name, uh, talent, time, and treasure out there, collect money for my friends, and put myself out there for critique, I want people to read my name. And I don't think that's unfair. Other than a, a personal philosophical difference toward what voting should, what how people should vote, uh, I'm curious why you think that that option should be taken away, especially considering the fact uh, that it would have a disproportionate effect in, especially on lines uh, in cities like Detroit, in, in Flint, uh, in Grand Rapids. Uh, that is a serious concern with that's your rid presumption. Of it's not necessarily the reality. We have a ballot for you to look at ahead of time. We have community partners who, uh, when they're registering people to vote, they can pull up, certainly go out before the election, give everyone a copy of their ballot so they can look at it before they go in. We have options and different things for people to look it up under Michigan.gov vote um, slash vote. Uh, we have those options. We have uh, absentee voting options. People are deciding that they want to take the ballot home or review it or get it mailed to them. Look at it and take their time. It is not an urgency to line up and spend a couple hours voting. That is just not correct. And the clerks, if they anticipate 
a large number of people voting, they can open up more booths. They can provide additional opportunities and time for people to come in and vote. That is a, a management of the clerk to make sure that those precincts who have a large voter turnout are well prepared. And that is the realities. If you put your name on the ballot, people should be able to see your name. People need to take their time and vote, and they have the time. Absentee voting offers those people time. Having the ballot ahead of time offers them time to review that ballot and take their time. If there's an urban area that is packed and people are lined up, they have not necessarily uh, done their due diligence with respect to looking at how many people voted absentee and making sure that they have sufficient ballot booths to accommodate what they anticipate. And they should be doing some outreach on what's on the ballot, read it ahead, and that is the outreach that those clerks and the people who are concerned about straight ticket voting being eliminated should do. In 30 seconds, why don't you give us your pitch against Proposal 3? Why should people vote against Proposal 3? Proposal 3 is 95% already in the law. It's just a ploy to get a liberal's ploy to get what they want where they couldn't get it through the legislature. And that's unfortunate. Linda Lee Tarver with the Republican Women's Federation of Michigan. Shana, I like how when you get tell people 30 seconds to give their position, they it's like they, they have it so practiced. It's down to like 10 <laughs> seconds. It's really interesting. It's getting into that home stretch of the election. Exactly. Now, before we hear someone who is in favor of Proposal 3, we wanted to check something that Linda Lee Tarver said about if you automatically register people to vote, if they are in sort of a precarious situation, if they don't want their names out there, this could put them at risk. And we reached out to some people to ask, you know, is that a legitimate concern? Uh, it is true that when you register to vote, it is a public document subject to the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, there are certain things that would not be uh, would not appear in that request. The month and day of birth a driver's license or personal ID card, the last four digits of the Social Security card, and the record that a person has declined to register. So there are things that can be looked up, although um, you know, the, it seems like the, people, the powers that be don't seem to think that this is something that they are specifically concerned about. There's been legislation in the past that has not passed, as far as I know, to protect people like law enforcement officers uh, and, and make it so that they don't have to give up their right to vote if someone is out after them. So it is a really interesting point that I had not heard before. Yeah, same. And it's something definitely that should be considered and looked into. And now let's talk to someone who was a state elections director for years and supports this proposal, Chris Thomas. And when you were covering state politics in Lansing, he was known as one of the very few people in Lansing where you couldn't tell where he came down on a policy issue at all. Yeah, that's right. Just a, just a couple of years ago with Chris Thomas, still the elections director, he was someone that I always like to go to to talk about how administering elections works in Michigan because I'm no expert on that. Um, but he was always just down to the business of that administering elections in accordance with the law. He would not weigh in on where he sort of stood on any policy issues. He did that for more than 40 years on both the state and federal levels. He was the elections director in Michigan for 36 of those years, working for both Democratic and Republican secretaries of state. Which is why I think we were both surprised when we found out that Chris Thomas <laughs> is out in front of this issue. Right. And he is very adamantly supporting Proposal 3. Big 
change. And, and in some ways, he's at odds with his former boss. And we asked him about that. Secretary of State Ruth Johnson says that she opposes same-day voter registration. Um, she says it doesn't give clerks enough time to effectively filter out non-citizens with Michigan ID cards, and she's concerned it could lead to voter fraud. So how do you respond to that, given that you are in favor of this proposal overall? Well, Here's how I see the system out there. Now, yes, the one way currently uh, voters are verified is a card is sent to the voter. Now, maybe that comes back, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it goes in a black hole, maybe it never gets delivered, who knows? So the assumption is if it doesn't come back, everything's fine. Now, over 80% of those go through the Secretary of State's branch office, so there are great you know, there are there are checks and balances there. In regard to election day registration, I would argue that one, providing proof of residence in addition to uh, complying with the ID laws to get the ballot on that day is actually more proof than you get in mail-in registration today. So when you do a mail-in postcard registration, there there's no proof of residence submitted. Where here, there's actually a document that's got to be shown. In most cases, of course, that'll be a driver's license or a state personal ID card. Now, the other thing which uh, has occurred in the last couple of years is the qualified voter file. Our statewide registration file has been reprogrammed to become a real-time system, which was not the case before. So with a real-time system, the clerk will go to that before they register anyone on election day to make sure that that person's not registered somewhere else that day. And if that's the case and that person provides all the required data, they'll be put into the system. So once that person's in the system, every clerk in the state can see that that occurred. So if that person were to go to the next community and attempt to register to vote, the qualified voter file is going to clearly show that that person within the last hour tried to re- or did register in a different community. So I think when you stack that up uh, with the current process, the safeguards there are, are certainly uh, as strong, if not stronger, than what's done currently. And then, of course, the fact of registering, and if somebody does that multiple times, you've now created a, f- a felony And my guess is that uh, prosecutors will be very tough on anybody who attempts to do that. Chris, there are a lot of changes in this proposal. Uh, I'm curious what you think about best practice when it comes to putting all of these distinct proposals in front of voters for a simple yes or no instead of having a process to evaluate and decide each one individually. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think they all run pretty much through the same current. It is increasing access to voters on what I view as a very nonpartisan way. Uh, This does not provide a Republican reform or Democratic reform process. These are all rights that would be established for each voter to be able to exercise. It increases um, the, the access to the ballot that really has not been done in Michigan over the past uh, decade and a half. Uh, As we've indicated in many cases, many, many states have done these already. There's no new proposal here. There's no cutting edge here. These are all standard practices in many other states. 
Chris, we are um, about out of time, so let me just have you give us your you know, quick one-minute pitch for why you think people should vote yes on Prop 3. A yes vote will guarantee the rights of voters to gain access to voter registration and the ballot. It's there to protect voters who get inappropriately um, purged or canceled. It's there to provide security through post-election audits. And again, to allow voters to have access to attempt to provide more democracy, not less democracy, in the state of Michigan. That's Chris Thomas, former Michigan elections director. He's in favor of Proposal 3 that deals with voter access to the ballot. And Shana, let's talk a little bit about what's different about these two proposals, Prop 2 and 3 and Prop 1. They are not quite the same thing. Right. The big thing, other than their topics, obviously, is that Prop 2 and Prop 3 would be changes to the state's constitution, which has some people nervous because it is a lot more difficult to make a change to the Constitution and to essentially override these proposals if they're passed into law than if they were just sort of a regular run-of-the-mill ballot initiative. Sure, that's definitely a concern. It's also, I think, the reason that they did that in the first place. They went this route of doing a constitutional amendment because, for one thing, Regular ballot proposals, they hit the legislature first. The legislature has a bite at whether they want to pass them, whether or not they want to put up a competing proposal. And with constitutional amendments, that's not the case. And that is key here because there were actually two other proposals that were headed for the ballot this year. And when they hit the legislative level, well, the lawmakers, they actually passed those bills. And that's the reason that we're not talking about them here today, Shana. Right. One would increase the state's minimum wage to $12 an hour over a period of time, and the other would require employers offer earned sick time to their employees. These were two initiatives that they got the signatures, they got the language right, and they were supposed to go on the ballot. Obviously, these are, like you said, more progressive, more liberal, more uh, Democratic-type proposals. However, our Republican-controlled legislature passed these initiatives, and they didn't need to have the signature of the governor. They just had to pass these proposals, and now they are technically law. However, Mm -hmm. they they did one of these sneaky technical things where (laughs) they didn't give them immediate effect. Mm -hmm. And stay with me, that basically just means that the law does not go into effect until a period of time later, well after the legislature returns for its lame duck session where they are notorious for passing through a bunch of stuff, sometimes very controversial things. And right now there are people that are concerned that essentially the legislature is going to come back after the election and they are just going to either gut or completely change these laws before they ever have a chance to take effect. And so then the reason that they can do that is because those were not constitutional amendments. Those were voter initiated laws. And so we will see that's going to be a big question mark once the election is over. Yeah, exactly. When this election is over, it does not mean you can relax. There will still be a lot more going on in the state. (laughs) Which, of course, Shana, will keep you and me in business. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, before we wrap up here, we wanted to give a quick shout out to the band Will Sessions from Detroit. You've been hearing their music throughout the show today. And as the theme for Mishmash, they have a new record out this fall. That'll do it for this special elections coverage from Mishmash. I'm Shana Roth. And I'm Jake Neer. Go out and vote on November 6th.